Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. where we talk about nursing and healthcare and, you know, while we're using true crime stories and other news stories to help us out with that. We have a couple of really interesting stories for you. But before I introduce my guest host for this week, I just wanted to thank all of you who have been going on to Apple Podcasts and giving us five star ratings and leaving us those really sweet reviews. And some of you have been messaging me and letting me know that you're trying to do that. And I guess that Android platforms don't necessarily allow you to do that the same way that Apple does. And I just I really appreciate everyone because you're obviously being so kind because as I said last week, all it takes is for me is literally there could there are five to six thousand of you that listen to this podcast every month. And for some reason, all it takes is one person to leave something negative, And I'm just crushed to my soul. I appreciate you all for jumping in there and encouraging me. And as I said, I read every single one of the reviews that come along. I get an email every time you leave a review and it is so appreciated and makes my day to hear from you. I really appreciate it. And now I would like to introduce my guest host for this week. Robert Malaire is back in the virtual studio today. Hello, Robert. Hey, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's good. It's good. You guys might remember Robert is a legal nurse consultant and he actually came to the Nurse Creator Con this year and told us all about that world, that life, and it's really fascinating job, I guess. I don't know, a career. It's a whole new world that is, I think that you have to really be connected to somebody to even understand it. It's just, it's kind of mysterious, but I appreciate you ex- explaining it to all of us and opening my eyes up to it and really appreciate you being coming back to do another show with me. It is my pleasure to be here. CreatorCon was amazing. Man, I had a great time not only just presenting, but just meeting the people that came in person. Very much looking forward to the second annual event in Vegas coming up over 2023, bringing in some new blood to support the uh, CreatorCon event that I'm associated with. And uh, man, and those of you that are leaving feedback for Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, man, thank y'all because I have enjoyed being on here. This is my third time on here with Tina and uh, knowing her through the venue of the Good Nurse, Bad Nurse format is one thing. But man, getting to know her in person, you come to another whole level of appreciation. So continue to give her the good feedback. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. 
CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com. Be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So I guess we can get into our bad nurse story. My goodness. When I saw this story, I don't know why I thought of you. I was like, I feel like Robert needs to do this story with me. It was just so full of unbelievable details. It is the craziest story. It's kind of back in the day, you know, a little bit, but, and yet recent as well, because it spans over several decades. So I'm excited to get into this and just kind of hash all these details out. And it's, it's a crazy story, but we better, better get started if we're going to be able to get to all of it. So this is the story of Layla Mulla, and Layla was born in Ohio. She, by all accounts, had a good childhood. She came from a household of high-achieving academics, and her father expected her to excel in academia as well. And so for a while, she apparently did make her family proud. And at the age of 16, she was an honor student. She was a violin prodigy, a star athlete. But she, like many adolescents do, developed a bit of a rebellious streak and during her teenage years started struggling with substance use after kind of falling into the wrong crowd. Unfortunately, that happens to people. So her parents spared no expense sought treatment for her daughter, and she remained impervious to treatment after two stints in rehab. She actually escaped from the rehab facility on her second visit and hitchhiked her way to Louisiana. This is really sad, Robert. I mean, it's just to think of somebody that has, you know, it's one thing for to see a child grow up in a really difficult situation and have a, a rough childhood, and you can almost understand how that kind of leads them down the wrong path. It's so hard to understand somebody that comes from a, you know, a, a good family, but they just sort of go off. But yet, we all have the ability to make those decisions, our life's, you know, choices. Yeah, what's really ironic about this story and the fact that you chose this one for today is I'm actually actively working on two cases, forensic cases, that are mirror images of this very scenario. Very conservative, very tight-knit family. And the one daughter was a high school, very successful cheerleader and athlete. And then as soon as graduation happened, she went off to college and the downward spiral of drugs, alcohol, and sexual addiction began. 
and that's a whole it turned into a whole thing. The second one was the same type of story, except the girl, the daughter was more involved in robotic aspects of school. She was very inclined to like uh, mechanical engineering, robotics, that type of thing. She went off to college and she was then kidnapped and entered into it into like a sex ring. And her whole world is just upside down, but very, very common beginnings. And it's amazing how just the downward spiral can change where you come from. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I think that at any time, you know, any of us can make decisions that kind of lead us down those paths. But a lot of times we are just kind of thrown into situations for various reasons. We have a harder fight, you know, to get out of those situations. But unfortunately, this is where she ended up. And so at 19 years old, she was considered by some to be a gorgeous temptress from a wealthy family. But didn't have any familial support in this new city. So traveling all the way down to Louisiana. So she resorted to a life of exotic dancing, working as a sex worker on some pretty seedy corners of Baton Rouge. And she met a bizarre man by the name of Ronald Dunnigan. He was apparently twice her age and became quite infatuated with her and ended up becoming her boyfriend and pimp, unfortunately. So his upbringing was quite a bit different to Mola's childhood. He and his siblings were routinely abused by their father, who apparently was very sadistic. Both he and his sister would later be diagnosed with schizophrenia. He was uneducated and worked as a street clown making balloon animals, supposedly was the one calling the shots in their relationship. And the couple had relocated a few times during their relationship to various cities, but stayed in the state of Louisiana. And Dunnigan insisted that there was a ghost, a closet ghost by the name of Squeaky that would follow them to each new residence. And whenever he couldn't be there, this ghost, I guess, was keeping eye on Layla. So she kept a journal during their relationship. And she wrote in her journal regarding this situation, thank God for the spirits and squeaky for they keep us together and keep the bond tight. So interesting, interesting relationship there. So in the 1980s, there was a businessman that came along. Now, this man is a very interesting, very interesting person, Gary Kurgan. He This was a time when the Sonic drive-in restaurants were just kind of getting started. And he had a vision. He saw this and he said, this is going to be huge. You can actually drive up to this building in your car and have car hops, bring your food out. You can sit in your car and eat. This is going to take off for sure. And he felt like it had massive potential for growth. He was a visionary. He talked to his brother, Ted Kurgan, and they worked together to manifest that vision into reality. They were exceptionally close, the two brothers. Ted considered Gary to be almost like a father figure to him because their father had died of a heart attack right after Ted was born. So his life, Gary Kurgan's life was quite picturesque, image of the American dream, successful businessman, had a wife, a young son, and they were just enjoying life, had a promising future for this really close-knit family 
However, and you watch, did you watch the videos that go along with this story, Robert? Yes, I did. Yeah. It's one thing to kind of talk about it like this. It's another thing to watch the video of his brother talking about his relationship with him. And it, it, I almost feel like I'm not really doing it justice just because it's kind of hard to without seeing the passion, you know, in his brother's eyes about what happened. Well, there was definitely a bond between these two brothers that is not common between other siblings. They were not only, you know, tied familially as brothers. I mean, they were connected business-wise. They were a true, they were friends. They did, I mean, from what it sounds like in the videos and through what I read, they were tied together in every possible way. And I mean, they trusted each other, relied on each other, and they started this whole business thing together. They they were true friends. Yeah. They even must have looked a whole lot alike because they would even get, people would mistake one for the other, apparently. Almost like twins. Yeah. 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 Well, late on the night of November 28th in 1984, Gary called his brother Ted with some incredible news. He had gone to Mississippi and secured the necessary funding to build several sonic restaurants in the area like he had envisioned. So this was a huge milestone in their careers. He was so excited to get to share all of the details with his brother. And I can so appreciate this because, you know, when something like this happens, you just want to talk about it. And especially if you have a relationship with another person who can appreciate it, then that's who you want to talk to. You want to be able to go talk to them and just hash out all the details because it's so exciting. And that's exactly what was happening here. So he made plans to go by his house and so they could talk it out. But Gary never made it to Ted's house that evening. Ted had fallen asleep on the couch waiting for his brother to get there. And then when he woke up in the morning, he realized that he never came by. And he found that very bizarre because he said Gary was a man of his word. And he, if he says he's going to come by, he's going to come by. And he was immediately concerned that his brother hadn't shown up to his house when he said he was going to be there. So Gary's wife, Susie, also found this very distressing and was absolutely panicked. So both Ted and Susie, they knew something was wrong. Ted immediately went on a mission, canvassing every square inch of Baton Rouge. He discovered that Gary had also phoned their other business partner, Larry Tucker, on the previous evening. So he, as of course you would, if you've got three people in business together, you're going to call everyone involved. And so he found out, oh, yeah, he had the same conversation with Larry the night before, shared, you know, this great news and told him that he was going to go see Ted. So that kind of confirmed he was planning to go to his house. So Ted went to great lengths to gather information on his brother's disappearance. But it was the it was as if he had just Gary had just vanished into thin air. Ted really feared that maybe he had fallen asleep at the wheel during his late night trip, you know, to his house, and maybe he had taken a wrong turn, ended up, you know, in the swamplands. He just, every scenario, I'm sure, went through his mind of what happened. I don't think that what actually happened would have ever occurred to him, though, that something so horrible would have actually befallen him. While Gary was a respected and humble man, 
it wasn't beyond him to visibly display some elements of his success. He liked, he drove a Cadillac, was very well dressed. He did the whole like button down, had like the shirt unbuttoned, you know, down a couple of, I don't know, a couple of buttons on <laughs> his chest, you know, in the gold chain. It was the early 80s. Okay, give him a break. But that would maybe attract maybe the wrong type of attention from somebody who might see him as a target, might, you know, have ill will toward him. So his disappearance could have been the workings of robbers or maybe kidnappers. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast. And they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. Ted did not immediately dismiss the speculations and employed his resources with the Acadia Parish Sheriff's Department to his benefit. So apparently both brothers were commissioned deputies with the Sheriff's Department and had assisted in some of the parish's previous investigations. And so he's saying, okay, my brother's missing, and he utilized that resource. Um, Now, I mentioned a a business partner, Larry Tucker. He actually shared an apartment with Gary. So Gary, and I mentioned the business partner earlier, he actually had an apartment in Baton Rouge with his business partner, Larry Tucker. And apparently, I guess if they needed to work in the area, they would just stay there. Maybe both of them kind of just, you know, both had a key. If they needed to be there, they'd stay there, whatever. They all had their, they both had their respective homes, but they had that apartment. And a few days earlier, Larry Tucker had kind of been tidying up the apartment and tossed a scrap piece of paper into the waste bin. And apparently this paper contained the name Erica on it and a phone number. And Gary was grateful, according to Larry Tucker, to see this paper being thrown away and actually remarked to him that he was doing him a favor and likely saved him from, quote, going out on his wife. So what I'm imagining happening is maybe Larry mentions, hey, I threw this away, or maybe maybe he was looking for the paper. I don't know. But Somehow he finds out that he threw it away and he's like, you know what? You just did me a favor. I didn't need that anyway. I may have made a huge mistake if you had not done that. So that's what I kind of kind of picture. But as far as anyone knew, Gary was a devoted husband and father. Ted, his brother, of course, that's now looking for him, struggled with the idea that his brother's marriage could have been, you know, going through this difficult time. But that scrap piece of paper was the only lead that he had at that point. And Ted wasn't sure who this mysterious Erica was that would have been written on the paper. But he was able to somehow track her down to a nightclub. And it was sort of a an adult club called The Hot Spot. And when he went in there, one of the dancers saw him and referred to him as Gary. So obviously his brother had been in this club because he this person's, you know, looking at him going, Oh, Hey, Gary, you know, and he's like, um, that's my brother. 
not only had been in the place, but was well known enough for people to know his name. Ted tells the dancer, you know, no, no, it's not. That wasn't me. That was my brother. And she said, oh, well, he was just here the previous night. And apparently after he kind of did some investigation and talking to her, they realized that he was last seen leaving with this dancer named Erica. Well, Erica's true identity, that was apparently her kind of dance name, dancer name, but her true identity was revealed on her dancer license or something. In order to apply for that, she had to put her real name, which was Lila Mola. So now he's like, okay, this mysterious woman is the last person to see my brother. And I, for one, mm -hmm. let me just throw this out there. I am shocked that strippers don't use their real name. Really? No, that's a joke. <laughs> I was like, I'm kind of, I kind of thought that was what they did, but I don't no, know. No, but what you just <laughs> said, I mean, this is a very sketch kind of lifestyle. And a lot of the work that I do, especially as a forensic nurse, you see this kind of, these kind of places, this kind of work going on that always kind of falls into these kind of stories. It's not a very safe place to be for these, not the workers or the men that go in there. You don't know exactly who you're working with because they don't use real names. I did not know, and what I found really interesting in this story alone was I did not know that they had to have a license with their real name on it. I'm not a participant in the strip club scene, but I, it just never even occurred to me that you would have, that they would have a license. I just figured they were people, you know, kind of coming off the street. Yeah. I wonder if that's a Louisiana thing. I don't know. I don't know. That's interesting. But good thing they did. I know that this, the governments tend to like to find every possible way they can squeeze every dime out of its citizens. <laughs> that's what I there do. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Further investigation uncovered that Gary was a regular there and a well-paying customer of uh, Lila Mola's or Erica and was known to have left the club with her on at least three other occasions. So there was, it was more than just a, Oh, he happens to know her. They obviously had connected, you know, the police go right to the duplex where Dunnigan and Mola lived. Okay. Lila Mola. And remember our, her boyfriend Dunnigan, Ted insisted he was coming along. Okay. He had done all of this investigation. So he's like, I'm the one that got you this far. I'm coming too. He said, I started to think that maybe Gary's in there and he's tied up in a closet and maybe in some kind of distress. And that's, you know, he's thinking, I want to go get there as quickly as possible to help him if at all, if at all possible. But there was no Gary. There was no Dunnigan or Mola there either at the apartment, as it turned out. But cops made a daunting discovery. There was apparently blood everywhere. According to Ted, there were parts of the walls that looked like someone had beat them with a hammer. and he said at that point, he knew for sure that Gary wasn't coming back. His brand new Cadillac was discovered by police soon afterwards. It had been left in a business parking lot for five days and was tainted with blood. The crime investigator said, what you're looking at is someone died in the trunk of that car. That's according to Ted. So a neighbor informed police that Dunnigan and Mullah had recently left in a hurry and they were on the run. So they started a new life in Las Vegas. And when Lila decided to go to the police station to get an escort license, so again, this is Las Vegas. I'm sure their rules and laws are different. And if someone wants to be involved in that profession, the government wants to get their part of it too. So they are going to make you get a license to do that. 
So she was arrested because the police were like, hey, there's a warrant out for your arrest from Baton Rouge for a material witness for a missing person. So she's detained. And then her boyfriend, Dunnigan, being none the wiser, waiting outside for Lila to complete the licensing process. They had no legitimate reason to hold Dunnigan because he was never actually seen with Gary. So in reality, the Lila was the one that they were after because there was no true connection, you know, that had been made. They knew that she had been with him leaving the club before he disappeared. He was just kind of somebody that was connected, but not really connected yet. Yeah, he was connected to her, right. but that didn't necessarily mean, you know, that he was connected to the disappearance. So they were able to make, though, an arrest on a bench warrant for a non-payment of a traffic ticket. So Vegas police knew that the bench warrant arrest for a traffic offense was going to be flimsy at best and would only buy the Baton Rouge investigators a short window of time. So Ted, again, assuming the role of intrepid investigator and with no time to waste, leased a private jet and charged it to his American Express card. Detectives raced to the Vegas interrogation room on a mission to get Mola to talk fast. She was quick to place blame on her boyfriend, Dunnigan. She stated that Dunnigan killed Gary by accident, and he did not deserve to die. Gary did not deserve to die. The police considered her statement to be a confession. So while cops searched the couple's Vegas apartment, Ted again was along for the ride for this and attempted to uncover his own evidence. He opened a kitchen drawer and located a notebook and a diary belonging to Lila Mola. I'm a little bit surprised that, I mean, I'm happy for him and I, I think he did a great job, but I'm a little surprised that he's able to be involved, you know, in this investigation in this way, because I feel like he could have really messed things up, you know, tainting evidence and that sort of thing. I think the two big issues here, and you're, and you're right, especially dealing with evidence and the way that it's handled, but you also have to consider that this is in the 1980s. And so a lot of things dealing with the way evidence is held, it wasn't even in place yet until the 90s. And one key factor is he financially funded most of this investigation, the jet to get them there, everything else. So he was, I mean, he had pretty much bought his way into this investigation. And if it hadn't been for him, they wouldn't even be where they were. So I'm fairly certain that he was valued from the investigator side and from law enforcement side as well. Yeah, it sounds like he was very persistent too. But in today's in today's standards, what they allowed him to do, especially the handing of evidence, the chain of evidence was not maintained. It would be problematic at best. Right. In an interview, Ted was talking about this diary that he found. And he said, I get to the point in the diary close to when Gary disappeared. And she says, hit Gary next time. Ron will hide in the closet, that good man. He said, my blood just went cold. I turned to the Baton Rouge detective and I said, I think maybe you need to read this. And they read that and said, we got him. It's premeditated. They had it planned. So they brought Dunnigan and Mullah back to Baton Rouge. And the district attorney's office at the time was ready to pounce, despite the evidence being somewhat circumstantial. But then a new district attorney, Brian Bush, stepped into office. And police and prosecutors were forced to close the murder book on the case. Because this new attorney said, I'm having real problems not having a body. So at the time you know, not having a body. He just didn't feel like he could prosecute the case. So he declined and Mullah and Dunnigan walked out of jail free as birds and went their separate ways. That was back in 1985. And a long time happened 
between then and when anything else happened with this case. But fortunately, there were some more things that happened. Dunnigan drifted back to the Baton Rouge area, falsely claimed disability benefits for many years while Mulla, Lila Mulla, moved to Queens, New York, obtained her nursing license in 2006. And then three decades later, 30 years With DNA testing technology readily available, Baton Rouge investigators began to revisit and reopen old cases. So Gary Kurgan's case was one of the cases that they reopened. And the business partner, Larry Tucker, his daughter has now grown up. And she is an investigator for the district attorney's office. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, small world. I know. So she knew that if they could match the 30-year-old collected DNA to a, a DNA sample from Wade Kurgan, Gary's son, they would have the break that they needed in the case. So Wade Kurgan submitted a DNA sample, and guess what? It was a match. So after th- nearly 30 years of waiting, Gary's brother Ted was closer to getting justice for his brother's murder. But there was one problem. Investigators didn't know where to locate their suspects. Ted, however, was one step ahead. For approximately 30 years, he had hired private investigators to track his brother's suspected murderers and knew exactly where they were. However, Ted didn't stop with only the private investigators. He recruited a close friend, a woman named Ann Edelman, to buddy up to the lonely drifter Dunnigan. And using Ted's money, she paid Dunnigan's expenses, even a cell phone, in order to gain trust and remain close to him. Ted even disguised himself as a chauffeur driving Edelman and the clueless Dunnigan around. So he just, he used his resources to basically just stay close to them. He was diligent for many years. Yes, he was. And I'm sure he was paying close attention just to see if there's any way he could, you know, overhear them talking about it. If there was, if it was even possible that they would, you know, give it away, but also to just stay in connection with them just in case he's, they're able to get any new evidence. As for Layla Mola, the divorced mother of two, was living in New York City. He said, I had actually gone to New York the day before the police had flown up and scoped out her apartment building. And when they arrested her at the apartment, I was outside. He had disguised himself as a homeless man and had gone unnoticed and watched her walk out. He said, I could hear her. And she said, I knew you would come back. So during the interrogation, Layla was adamant that her previous boyfriend was the mastermind behind Gary's death. She assumed the position of a psychological hostage and confessed to investigators that she was forced into seducing rich men. So the current DA was not convinced of Layla's portrayal of vulnerability. And after continuing to question her, she was ready to talk. So what she said happened that late November, nearly three decades ago, is that Dunnigan, her boyfriend, devised a plan to rob and murder the sonic businessman and she was forced to comply with his demands. She said that Dunnigan had conducted some research on poisoning methods and began to test out the efficacy of the poison on small animals like guinea pigs and mice. She attested that she didn't know what the poison was specifically, but she vaguely recalled it being a powdery substance. So once he was satisfied that this, that poison was going to work, she said that Dunnigan instructed her to lure Gary to their apartment that they shared and then under his orders, according to her, she convinced the at the time 29 year 29, he was only 29, my goodness. She convinced him to accompany her to her apartment after her shift at the hotspot. Layla 
stated that she offered drinks of wine to the unsuspecting man and seduced him. With phase one of his Dunnigan's plan complete, she left the bedroom and then returned with more wine and this time had it laced with the poison. So Gary began to choke and Layla left the bedroom. Dunnigan emerged from the closet. He had apparently been there the whole time and he proceeded to smother Gary with a pillow. And then once he stopped moving, he moved the body to the bathroom where he proceeded to dismember his body with a handsaw. You know, this just all seems so pointless. It's just hard to understand why, you know, people do what they do. I know that he looked like he had a lot of money, but they didn't really go after his money. I think they said he had something like $2,000 on him. And so they took that money and used it to get to Vegas. But is that worth a man's life? This guy was a sociopath. There's right. no rhyme or reason. There's no way to effectively break down the reason why they did it. It was just the mere fact that he wanted to do it. He is the epitome of or the, you know, the clinical definition of a sociopath. That's just what this guy is. And he utilized his inner workings in the sex world, in the drug world, and and these very manipulating kind of females that work in this industry. There's drugs, there's alcohol, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And especially in my line of work, you see this kind of stuff. And these men just take advantage of the vulnerability. And a lot of them are street smart, but they're gullible. They use that against them and they use their manipulative ways to get whatever they want from these women. And Unfortunately, she fell right into a very, very psychopathic process. Yeah, there was kind of some talk about whether or not she possibly could have been sadistic as well. And I think it's hard to tell because, of course, from her point of view, they came to her and she turned on him. She turned on Dunnigan and in exchange for her confession and giving him up, she was given a plea deal. So of course she's going to say it was all his idea. And I, you know, I was the victim or I was, I was a victim in this. But the thing is she got 30 years, 30 years. That's, that does not sound like much of a plea deal to me. I don't, I mean. But if she would have been convicted of murder in the first, which is premeditated murder, she would have got life or could have been up for the death penalty. Hmm. So, I mean, 30 years is a whole lot less than life. Yeah. I guess. I mean, she's, I don't even know how old she is. It's been 30 years and, you know, so she was in her 20s. So it doesn't seem like much of a plea deal to me. But when you look at it, like, like what you're saying, and maybe if she's thinking, oh, I I would definitely, with all of this evidence, I would definitely, at the very least, get life in prison. And like you said, possibly the death penalty. So she did end up saying, that the motive wasn't actually money. She said that it was a thrill kill, that they just wanted to see what it felt like to kill someone. And that's probably why she got 30 years. I'm glad that she did. I just, sometimes people just get a few years for something that you're just thinking, how could they have only gotten a few years? And sometimes they get like decades for something that you're just like, why are they still in prison? You know? So I'm glad she's in prison. And I think that's exactly where she needs to be. It's scary to think the fact that she was actually a nurse. She was taking care of people. I, uh, when I, when I first read this story, two things came to mind, especially from my demented way of looking at things as a, after having done this for so many years as a forensic nurse, especially and working on cases directly with law enforcement, it'd be interesting to do a case study with her to see if she went into nursing to try to, in some way, redirect or redo what she had done in this case. 
where it was like her kind of mental way of fixing or making right what she did. Or I'd be very interested in going back in through her nursing process and seeing how many people were injured or killed during her Because if she was care. truly, you know, she was fascinated by death and all of that. If she was as if she was mm-hmm. as much a sociopath as he was, and this continued, and that's the part of the story that I, I was going to bring to light with you is, I would expect that there'd been further investigation to, into the quality of care and the patients that she took care of, and what the outcomes were, or if there was any strange or weird things going on. I'd be interested um, in, in that too. Care. They would never. You I'd know, be very interested to see. Never let you anywhere near. The, the records of any of the patients she took care of because they would never want that to come to light. Well, Gary's wife and his mother passed away before they could see justice come to light. And Ted is satisfied now that justice has been served. He really wishes that he could have found his body. Although they did say that they dismembered him and put him in different dumpsters all over the place. And so unfortunately, I think that the way that they made it to where he's, I don't know that he's ever going to be able to find his body, but he said, he's not going to stop searching. And I believe that I totally believe that he will, if it's possible to find him, he will. I guess the two underlying themes of this story, unfortunately, are number one, stay out of strip clubs, stay out of places with that. You don't know. I mean, there's nothing good that happens at those places. And honestly, I mean, we always, especially from my line of work, there's nothing good. And this guy was a married guy. And what really hit me strongly was, I mean, he had a brother that was as close as a, as a twin that had no idea of his what he was doing outside of that relationship with his brother or his wife. And unfortunately, he went into a dark world that has very, very negative outcomes, as you see. Sometimes not as bad as this one, but I mean, the outcomes that related to family, children, they're never good. Secondly, it shines a huge light on the lack of productivity of our law enforcement. Even whenever you have adequate numbers of law enforcement to do investigations, it took a man, a brother, financing it, going well beyond even what a family member should do. I mean, he paid for somebody to follow these two individuals for decades to finally come to an end spot where he could have closure and these people were held accountable for what they did to his but it wasn't because of what law, and I love law enforcement. I mean, I value what they do each and every day. But what it, we never, this story would not end the way it does today if he hadn't have done his due diligence, both financially and just the work he put in to, yeah. to make sure these That's people true. were held accountable. That's very true. And what's really ironic with that is, I mean, as a forensic nurse and seeing these type of cases, and we, I just finished a case where law enforcement had found one a case that they had received. They found that the wife had committed suicide. And once I got the case, started reviewing all of the stuff and kind of walked through it. In my report, I found that the husband had actually killed the wife and had hung her. Strangulated her, made it look like a hanging. And now, law, now the DA in this county has now reopened the case and arrested the husband for murder. So this happens, sadly, more often than we know. And you, I mean, it takes family, it takes friends, it takes people in the general community to ensure that, I mean, if you have concerns, if you have something, voice them, let them be known. In the nursing community alone, if you see things, you know things, you know, say it, report it, and you could be very pivotal in, in providing that information. Absolutely. 
So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing, uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. I guess that wraps it up for our bad nurse story. We have a really interesting good nurse story that is so connected to you and what you do that I was so excited when I saw this. It's a brand new article from nurse.org. It says forensic nurse develops bruise detecting technology for dark skin. This is by Shawnee Brucey. And Apparently, Catherine Scafidi, she's a PhD, RN, forensic nurse scientist and associate professor at George Mason University's College of Public Health and School of Nursing. And according to this article, she's pioneered the use of technology using alternate light sources or ALS with specific wavelengths as a way to better detect bruises on dark skin, potentially leading to improved documentation, care, and legal justice for victims of violence who have dark skin tones. I just think that's amazing. I'm so proud of her. It's pretty amazing. So what do you think about this, like the implications for this? I know that you have dealt with victims, and I can just sort of imagine somebody in a situation where they're not being believed because they don't look like they have, you know, it's one thing if you have light skin and you can see bruises all over you, and it's another thing if you just can't see those bruises. So what's really kind of interesting about this is I'm a forensic nurse expert, I'm a sexual assault forensic examiner, and I do review a ton of cases like this. I go to the ERs and do um, evaluations of people that have, you know, are victims of domestic violence, child abuse, and bruising. I have over 2,000 hours in bruising expertise, training, education, clinical. And one of the most difficult areas of practice is in the darker pigmented skin tones, is determining the aging of a bruise. We can't tell exactly when an eight, when a bruise occurred, but we can tell how the aging process, you know, how 
the body reabsorbs the oxygen, the bilirubin, and then the actual blood or fragments of the bruise back into the system and the discoloration changes of the bruise and a timeline of, of consistency with healing. The inability to, prior to kind of her technology, to do this in the darker toned pigmentations, this is going to change the absolute world of, of forensics. To be able to highlight and what she has what she has engineered and what she has brought to light is being able to basically blacklight these type skin tones where the underlying injury is exposed and you can see to what extent that skin tone has been changed, the bruising pattern, the discoloration and how it's changed. It's a game changer for determining the extent of injury, causation, and looking for patterns of blunt force trauma in the darker skin tones. I mean, it is an absolute game changer that it's going to change the forensic world and um, investigations as far as both medically and from law enforcement standpoint completely. And I mean, I think it's absolutely amazing what she what she has what she's doing. I don't understand a lot of it. I have never even worked in an emergency room. I don't really understand a lot of the, that whole world. But I can imagine someone who has been victimized and is struggling to want to be believed, you know, and the people doing the investigation wanting to believe them and wanting to be able to prove that what they're saying is true. And if this can help that process, they're saying that these evidence-based clinical guidelines will set strict requirements on the patient conditions, the technology that can be employed, how to do the assessment, what settings it can be used in, and provide guidance on how to do that assessment in conjunction with the rest of the medical forensic exam. And it also says the guidelines will take into consideration the other people involved with these kinds of cases, including police and law enforcement. Fortunately, her team does have a federally funded grant that they are using to develop those very guidelines, which they hope to be able to release sometime next year to the public. It's exciting. Especially in the ERs and actually doing assessments for nurses from both of the sexual assault and for the domestic violence type assessments. It's, it's an absolute game changer. And it's and it's great for victims. Well, I mean, those that are turned away or not believed because we're, you know, there's not any physical evidence or or manifestations of bruising patterns because of you just can't see the melanin type changes in the skin. It, it, this this is an absolute game changer. Well, I guess that wraps it up for another episode of Good Nurse Bad Nurse. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, Robert. Man, it is my pleasure. Anytime I am available, I am at your your beck and call. Appreciate being asked back and enjoyed it and wish you the Merry best. Christmas. Have a Merry Christmas. And you guys, you can email me at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And find me on all the social media places at Good Nurse Bad Nurse. And I also want to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.